You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for November 28th, 2021, the first Sunday in Advent. Today's sermon was given by the Rev. Dr. Justin E. Crisp. It's based on Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 36. So Christians are not alone in imagining the end of the world. Ancient Norse mythology had the twilight of the gods, the so-called Ragnarok. The ancient Egyptians believed that the world would be eventually reclaimed by the waters of chaos from which it once emerged. Hinduism has the appearance of the last incarnation of the god Vishnu. And more recently, we've been inclined to imagine the end of the world as a nuclear winter, something like the, um, the unspecified cataclysm which has occurred just before uh, the, 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 the story of the novel The Road by Cormac McCarthy picks up. Or we've been inclined to imagine the end of the world in a way that's a little too close to home perhaps nowadays as the spread of a deadly pathogen. Or, we shouldn't forget this, zombies. Americans love zombies, right? Whether the zombies were created by a supernatural event or, again, by a deadly pathogen of some kind, or both. Or, in the increasingly numerous depictions of a cataclysm of an ecological sort, such as that which is in Margaret Atwood's novel, The Year of the Flood, the end of the world is very often on the human menu, and it seems always to have been. It's a way of putting our lives and our worlds in perspective by imagining the end of them. Giving us opportunities to reflect on questions like, what makes life worth living? What is the meaning of life in a world such as this? What's our place in the universe? Given the fact that this world is often so hostile to life. Is there any peace to be made with all of this? And the first Sunday of Advent poses these questions to Christians and does so each and every year. No matter which of the three years of the lectionary cycle we're in, there's always a reading like the one which Father Peter just read from the Gospel of St. Luke. The first thing Christians acknowledge about the end of the world is just that, that it, that the world ends, that the present form of the world of time and space as we experience it and know it is not of itself eternal, but rather will pass away. And in this, actually, Christians are in good company with modern science. So modern physics actually corroborates this. There's a fabulously cartoonish short put together by the BBC in August of this, uh, just this past August, actually, in which the theoretical astrophysicist Kate Mack walks viewers through the five most likely ways physicists believe the world will end. So physicists are, they have consensus on the fact that the world will end, but they like to debate exactly how it's going to happen. The most likely of those five most likely theories about how the world will end is something they call heat death. Sounds cheery, right? Heat death. In which, over the course of trillions of years, as the universe keeps expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding, eventually the expanding will peter out. Kind of like the runner at the end of a 5K. Stars burn out, 
matter decays, black holes evaporate, and everything kind of fades to black, as Mac puts it. Now, other possibilities for how the world is going to end, and I'm not going to give them to you in detail. You can, um, you can look up the BBC short for yourself. I'm just going to give you the names, because I love the names. The Big Crunch is one. The Big Rip. Vacuum Decay. And my favorite, The Bounce. So the scientific consensus is that the world is going to end. The question is, which of these ways is the world going to end? That is, both scientists and theologians are agreed that the world is finite. That it has a beginning and it has an end. It will not go on forever. So if we're agreed that the world is going to end, even if a very, 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 very long time from now, right? Okay, so these are trillions of years we're talking about. So don't go out and sell all of your stocks and get rid of your 401k. Astrophysicists are not telling you that this is going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen trillions of years from now, okay? But even if it's going to happen trillions of years from now, if we're all agreed that the world is going to end, do Christians believe that Jesus is referring to that end in our lesson from Luke this morning? Was Jesus referring to heat death, or the big crunch, or the big rip, or the bounce? And the answer, I think, is kind of. Just kind of. See, I think there are at least two kinds of apocalyptic language in the New Testament. The first refers to seemingly world-ending events of human or created origin. These are things like the destruction of the temple in the year 70, about which Father Peter preached in his sermon a few weeks ago when that lesson came up from the Gospel of Mark. Or there are things like those described earlier in the chapter from which our lesson from Luke this morning is taken where Jesus warns of wars and insurrections and great earthquakes. These are the catastrophes of this worldly history, our history. We are acquainted with them, right? We have known wars and insurrections and great earthquakes aplenty. And these events may not bring an actual end to the universe, like heat death but they certainly end worlds in a more personal sense, don't they? Now, I don't consider these sayings to be predictions of like when these wars and insurrections and great earthquakes are going to happen, so much as Jesus is giving variations on a theme of catastrophe using language which is common to his Jewish context in the first century. Variations on the theme of catastrophe, which he knew would be applicable to his followers in whatever generation they find themselves in, including ours. We are going to have wars and insurrections and great earthquakes and so on to contend with, just as every other generation of his followers has, and every other generation will until the end of the world. And Jesus' counsel, his advice for us under those circumstances is raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. 
The second sort of apocalyptic language in the New Testament is that which unveils the present moment in order to kind of peek behind the material historical curtain and see what the spiritual reality behind it is. So it's not so much something which is happening in this world of time and space so much as it's happening behind it or within it or at its depths. The most obvious example of this kind of language is found in the book of Revelation which in a series of visions given to St. John the Divine the relationship between God and creation is depicted simultaneously as a war and a liturgy. It sounds crazy, but I mean, there, are, there are angels swinging great giant thuribles and, you know, the, the coals spill out of the, the incense, you know, they're burning incense in this great cosmic liturgy and the coals kind of fly out of the incense burner and they, you know, topple over the armies of evil and that kind of thing. Okay, that's my kind of war, right? A war thought, fought with uh, incense burners and thuribles. Uh, so the, the world is simultaneously a war, excuse me, the relationship between God and the world is simultaneously a war and a liturgy, a battle between wickedness and holiness and the inbreaking of a new creation wrapped in awe and worship, according to Revelation. And the point of these visions is not to depict any historical events, still less to predict them, right? The point of Revelation is not to say that in the year 7,000, angels are going to descend from heaven with giant Thurables as big as St. Mark's Episcopal Church in New Canaan, Connecticut, and, you know, smash down real, literal armies of evil. Rather, Revelation is trying to show us the drama of the conflict between good and evil, which occurs in the recesses of every human heart. And I think in some mysterious way, even in the depths of the natural world, Showing us the conflict between our will and God's. And in that drama, in that conflict, the point of Revelation is that God wins. And that God wins conclusively. With a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples. And in what is my favorite line in all of Scripture? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. This is not so much the foretelling of a point on the timeline of our history as it is a depiction of the scene upon which every human being enters when they die. And they are resurrected in the wholeness of their being into the presence of God, who wipes away every tear from their eyes and says, Behold, I am making all things new. Death is the end of a world. And I believe it is a translation of whatever has died into a new one, as it were. 
Whether it was a human being, or a dog, or a cat, or a tree, or an atom, or even the universe itself, trillions of trillions of years from now. The time and space of history is made into the time and space of eternity through the gate of death, which has been transformed forever by the cross. As though mud could be magicked into music. And though this end too, the natural end of death, destined for all of us, and in fact for all of creation, can cause people to faint from fear and foreboding, as Jesus puts it, as much as wars and rumors of wars, Jesus tells us that our response is to be the same here too. To stand up and raise our heads because our redemption is drawing near. This is the Christian point, the crucial twist it forces on every turn. That, yes, the story of the world has an ending, but it is a happy one. It is wrongs put to rights, a peaceable garden, a parent consoling a child, a wedding banquet. These are the images which scripture uses most often to depict the life of this new world. And this good news gives Christians an otherworldly kind of peace and courage, I think, in the midst of things that are passing away. Passing away either on what we might call the horizontal axis of our world's history, in which things like wars and insurrections and earthquakes and pandemics happen, or on the vertical axis of that history's relation to God in every single moment, such as the book of Revelation is describing as that conflict, that drama between good and evil. Christians can have an otherworldly kind of peace and courage in the midst of earthquakes and temptations alike, terrorist attacks and broken relationships. Christians are the people who stand up and raise our heads rather than bury them in the hands of either denial or despair, because we are the enemies of every form of alarmism, as well as the patient laborers who love, preserve, and keep rebuilding the world over and over and over and over and over again, right up until the end of it, or the end of us, or both. Because we are assured first that every end is a beginning, and second, that God so loves the world that God too will preserve and save and Rebuild it, in a way, and we'll do so conclusively, forever. We begin each liturgical year by reminding ourselves that the world has a happy ending. That's why this is the first day of the liturgical year, and this is why the lessons, the collects, the music is appointed for it, to remind us that Notwithstanding all appearances to the contrary, the world has a happy ending because Jesus was right in the gospel this morning. Things very often look very bleak. 
But Jesus is equally right. That as W.H. Auden put it, riffing on something from Shakespeare, the bard was sober when he wrote that this world of fact we love is unsubstantial stuff. All the rest is silence on the other side of the wall. And the silence, ripeness. And the ripeness, all. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanaan.org.